0: Welcome to New Books in Media and Communications, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts featuring discussions with scholars on current subjects in communication research, media studies, and technology studies. I'm your host, John Baltz, a digital media and advertising professional. Our website is newbooksandcommunications.com, where you can subscribe and find a short summary of the book discussed on today's show. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to past conversations with other authors. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes and Stitcher. If you like us, please consider leaving a review. If you don't like us, let us know how we can be better. Your feedback helps us prepare the best, most engaging conversations possible. Today's guest is Finn Brunton, a New York University professor and the author of Spam, a Shadow History of the Internet, published in 2013 by MIT Press. Spam is a subject anyone with an email address can relate to. It has been with us since the beginning of the Internet and perhaps, as Finn and I discuss, even before it. Spam earned its name from a Monty Python sketch in which a group of annoying Vikings sing spam every time the food is mentioned, turning it into a word for other kinds of, quote, tedious, repetitious, and irritating behavior. Spam is now much more than annoying. It's dangerous. No longer just a way to sell you counterfeit and inferior products. Spam is a means to control and infect machines, steal information, and attack other computer networks. My conversation with Finn focuses mostly on spam in the 21st century and how governments and large technology companies like Google and Facebook tried to identify and regulate it. The conversation lasts just under an hour. I hope you enjoy it. My guest today is Finn Brunton. Uh, An assistant professor of media, culture, and communication at NYU's Steinhardt School of Culture, Education, and Human Development. Finn works on the history and theory of digital media technology with a focus on adoption, how computing and networking machinery gets adapted, abused, modified, hacked, and transformed. Spam, of course, fits nicely into all of those areas. Finn, welcome to the new books in media and communications podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Uh, Spam is a popular term, not an academic term. It's a term we all know. Most of us are familiar, I think, with spam that ends up in our email inboxes. But what else is spam? like? Where else does spam show up in our travels across the internet and social networks? That's a really, it's a
1: really good question because it, that kind of cuts to the heart of what I, I ended up having to do with the book, which was that at a certain point, because for most of the process of doing the research, right, one of the things I wanted to figure out is like really simply, what is spam? You know, like how do you, how can we like exactly define, you know, the parameters, the properties of this thing? And what I eventually realized was that I can't. All I can do is follow the movement of the word because the way that we've applied the word to different things over the course of the history of the internet is actually kind of like an index of whatever we whatever we decided that the internet was for, because spam was the opposite of that. So what that means as a practical matter is that even though these things might not necessarily seem consistent, when we move across the the network, right, we encounter spam sometimes in the form of email, but often now in the form of other kinds of things. We encounter it in the form of, um, like, retweet requests from Twitter bots. Um, we encounter it in the form of like, weird links on wikis. Like, Wikipedia has gotten pretty good about policing these, but um, but many other wikis will have, like, odd links on them to sites that we never click. We're not even quite sure why they're there, but those are a form of spam called link spam. We encounter them when we stumble across... Uh, search results that Google provides that where you're like, this, this doesn't seem like it should be so high in the search results, you know, listing. This seems like really crappy, low grade information. Why is this here? That's a kind of result of spam at work. Um, we encounter it now in almost every kind of social media that we engage with. There are now forms of Instagram spam. <laughs> there's spam on Facebook. It's, it's, but in every one of these cases, even though we're seeing this, on, like these platforms in many ways could not be more different aside from, you know, email is so far from what Facebook is as like a technical structure, as a system in terms of how it works. And yet, we can identify a particular activity as spam on both of those kinds of platforms. And part of the reason we can do that is that as this concept moves, wherever it goes, it becomes one of the ways that we can talk about people using the technology to misuse other people's
0: attention. So is is that what these forms have in common, the misuse of other people's attention?
1: In in my opinion, yeah. I, I argue in the book that... Because the, the, um, when you follow the term spam back far enough in the history of, you know, networked computers, you know, I mean, you can, you can see things that are like clearly proto spam that go all the way back to like the 70s, the 60s, like really, really, really early things. But when you first start to see the concept really take shape, um, in the, in the 1980s, a lot of what you're seeing is something that is, almost diametrically opposite to the kind of like strict definitions that would evolve that a lot of us got used to in the 90s in the sense that the kinds of spam messages that people were talking about then weren't and they were using that word they were using this exact phrase like you know I'm getting all this spam they didn't mean like commercial messages they didn't mean ads they didn't mean you know come ons for products or pornography or whatever Um, instead they just meant things that were irrelevant to the topic of discussion wherever they happen to be. So if you are in a essentially a kind of discussion group, a news group, some one of these sort of earlier manifestations, right? You all are getting together there because you want to talk with other people who share your interest in commercial aviation, you know, or in the history of the Star Trek universe or whatever. And then someone comes in and starts posting things that have no significance for that conversation. They want to talk about something else. They want to raise your consciousness about a political outrage. They're cross-posting in many different places with the same thing, and it doesn't fit anywhere. They would identify that as spam. And they often would not consider commercial messages to be spammed because usually commercial messages unsolicited ads at that time were still really geared towards like the content of whatever was being discussed you know it was actually in a weird way like relevant like you were probably exactly the audience for this book of star trek trivia or what have you and and now we, like, that's obviously like flip flopped, right? You know, we have very different ways of talking about what we think of as irrelevant information, but spam is almost entirely like commercial in orientation or, or financial in orientation, whether that's to get your credit card info or sell you something or get you to buy a bunch of likes or what have you. Now, the reason I say all that is that that whole trajectory, the one common thread that connects all these different formats is that There is some sense of what we want to receive. There is some sense of what matters for purposes of our attention. When we are clicking on something, when we are looking at something, there is a sense that we we know to some degree what we are looking for. And spam is a violation of that. Spam is a breakdown of salience. Salience. And in the process of trying to identify what is spam and what isn't, we can actually see really clearly companies, individuals, whole communities kind of sorting out this is what uh, attention online looks like. This is what it's supposed to be rewarded with, and this is what is going to break that reward. This is a violation of that, and that must be stopped.
0: Spam, it's interesting. I hear two pieces in in what you're saying. Is, Is spam an individually subjective judgments um, and let me sort of follow it up with if so there's also is there not the process uh, as a collective or a community to sort of decide amongst all of the individual views on what spam is or isn't what then is acceptable uh, from a uh, a spamming uh, essentially when spam would go out to a, a User group or mm-hmm. uh, an email inbox. I mean, that's sort of a collective community judgment that's being made. But the definitions that you're giving, it, it seems like spam is sort of whatever I claim spam is to be. It's, it's not relevant <laughs> to my attention. No, exactly, exactly. <clears throat> and what you've identified, like the,
1: you you basically put your finger on one of the sort of great unfolding tragedies of. The internet, which was the fact that the answer to your question, the answer to both of your questions is like kind of both and neither, you know, that like, like, like a lot of different things that have become flashpoints of contention, spam is something that is simultaneously super subjective, but necessarily also something that we have to have to develop some sort of like collective model of. So, and in much the same way that you can see with, you know, with questions around things like pornography, right? Like, what is pornography? How do you define it? You know, we've got all this sort of this classic uh, canonical legal arguments about how, like, well, I can't define it precisely, but I know it when I see it. Like, spam is something that, and I've, I've, you know, gone, done all this kind of archival stuff to, to show this happening in action. Spam is a space where everyone is making these subjective judgment calls, more or less, you know, like... People are, some people are willing to live with more advertising or less advertising. Some people are willing to live with making it easier for strangers to get in touch with them. And they're willing to sort of like, you know, accept as the price of that, a certain amount of unwanted mail. Um, some people are willing to sort of put up with more noise on the network rather than having like one authority to judge what is really worthwhile versus what isn't. And that's fine and that 's a conversation that people have had at many different points, but at a certain stage, that conversation starts to break down because if you 're going to like the the, the way that i The way that I like to tell the story of spam is that at every stage, whether we're talking about the earliest people on early computer networks or whether we're talking about the birth of Google or the rise of Wikipedia or some of Twitter's current problems, at every one of those stages, it's the same story that plays out again. And that story is, oh, my God, this thing has started to happen, and it's we find it completely unacceptable, and we have to do something about it. And then the second step of the story is, wait a second, who's we in this situation? Because, you know, I don't remember, like, us forming a government, you know? Why are you guys deciding about... And then, well, we have to come up with some kind of collective sense of who's in charge and what the enforcement tools are and who gets to use them. And you can watch on on Usenet, which is one of the networks that I... I drew on a lot for part of the book, which is, it's essentially a kind of um, a parallel internet that was enormously popular for, for more than a decade and is still around in, in diminished form, but was an area where a lot of things that ended up becoming part of network culture were kind of birthed. So on Usenet, as these problems started to proliferate, as spammers started posting more and more irrelevant messages to different groups, the the political split that immediately happened is a split that I think we can still see playing out in different forms today. And I actually adopted some of these concepts from the the great tech journalist Julian DeBell, um, who was also studying kind of how Usenet was working and what was happening on on a lot of these early networks, um, where he talked about how like you would start to see these different groups emerge. There would be like the techno-libertarians who are like, we don't need governance. We don't need, you know, Uh, to have politics in our network. We can just have really well-built technical tools. And if those are sophisticated enough, then we can solve this problem. And then you would get the anarchists who would be like, look, if you're having trouble with spam, just deal with it somehow. I don't care. The really important thing is that we should not be trying to impose larger structures on this new system that we've built because this is an opportunity to live without those. And then you would have royalists, um, in DeBell's terms, who would try to like find someone that they could give authority to that could then be put in charge of this, you know, whether a systems administrator or someone who ran a major node, like someone who could actually like carry the burden of sovereignty for making these calls and then using these enforcement tools to do things like ban people and shut systems down and block messages. And all this stuff that totally understandably really raised the hackles on the, the, the you know, on the, in, on the next, I just realized I don't know what hackles are raised on, but really raised <laughs> the hackles of all the people who were using these early systems. Um, and then finally you had the parliamentarians, the so people who were like, okay, what we need is like a governance system. We need to have like votes and ways that people can make these decisions such that we can come together and in a clear, transparent way, say, we have decided that, for example, Unsolicited commercial mail is unacceptable. And therefore we are going to like collectively ban those users and change the system in such and such a way. And what you can see right now is like that things like that are still playing out in different forms. You know, Twitter is having to police a, a very large population of users who are engaging in different kinds of spammy behavior, where some of them are, are uh, robots, you know, they're just like software that is generating, creating Twitter accounts and then generating huge volumes of the tweets that are advertising things or retweeting people, or just creating the illusion of a high follower count. Um, but then you also get people, you know, real human people who are doing Spanish things or like pushing products or jumping on particular hashtags and trying to use them as vehicles for, you know, sleazy ads. Now, the problem with this is that Twitter's trying to police this, and that should be straightforward, right? Twitter's the authority. They own the platform. They run the platform. But every step they take, you can see the same old police political dramas playing out. What are they going to define as spam exactly? How are they going to define spam such that they can legitimately kick out people who are trying to get you to download their mixtape, but they're not going to kick out, say, Burger King running Twitter campaigns where they'll hop on a hashtag to advertise a new new burger. Um, And as they go, as they start to clear out all of these bot accounts. They're also knocking out bots that people built for legitimate purposes that wasn't advertising. And they're horrifying people who thought they had big follower accounts that are suddenly dramatically reduced because most of those accounts were synthetic. Most of those accounts were software. And there's a huge public outcry and all this argument about how dare you do this. We're the users. The system belongs to us. And we wanted to find spam differently to prevent you from taking this kind of action. So, at every step, whether we're talking about private companies, whether we're talking about these very early kind of anarchistic days on the network, then, now, and everywhere in between, you can only go one step into spam before it turns into politics.
0: On this question of politics or governance, particularly at a national level, there's, this, there's one point at which the federal government has intervened mm-hmm. in this battle Uh, over Spam with the 2003 CAN-SPAM Act. (laughs) (laughs) Such a cute acronym. Great acronym. Um, You see this as a pivot point uh, in Spam's history that leads to the exit of legitimate marketers uh, and basically sort of a shift into an influx of of criminals and uh, tech-savvy algorithms and botnets that are basically creating spam very cheaply using machines, H- how does can spam play a role in, in essentially pushing spam underground and how do you evaluate its overall successes and failures now more than ten years after it's a really it's a good question and and part of what i I find really
1: fascinating about this story is what um, what you can think of as like almost kind of the synergetic effect of can spam and a couple of different other things that all interacted at the same time to really change the, the nature of, um, of spam as a phenomenon. So part of the reason why canned spam is really significant is that it was, it was one of a number of different um, you know, bills and laws that were put forward by different countries around the world. And, and the crucial thing about this was that this was governments doing two things. The first was beginning to produce... A, a formal evaluation that could then be like the law of the land for what spam was but but the but the kind of other thing which is a little bit subtler is even more important, which is that they were taking a stand which they had not taken for quite a while. And the way that they had not taken it was one of the reasons why spam was thriving in the way that it was in the 90s. Because there were certain, in in the same way as with that example of Twitter trying to figure out how to deal with certain spammers without like interfering with Burger King, um, the U.S. government, and the this, this same is true of many other governments, but the U.S. is a particular, particularly interesting case for this. The U.S. government actually had powerful interests that didn't want anyone to come forward with too narrow a definition of what constituted spam. Because the Direct Mailing Association of America, um, the, the lobbying group, and, and in fact a number of different lobbying groups that were working on behalf of advertisers and marketers... You know, all those people who are, like, establishing the rules by which they can make robocalls to advertise things to you or, you know, flood your actual physical mailbox with, you know, circulars and garbage and so on. Um, those people knew that the Internet um, was going to be the, a, a, you know, the, the new market for them. So they were extremely leery of a government lawmaker, however well-intentioned, Coming up with the definition of what counted as spam that was too broad such that it would create legal precedent for stopping them from applying direct marketing strategies online. So what this essentially created was a kind of umbrella effect where the malfeasance, if I may, Take a stand here. Um, the malfeasance of this big group trying to kind of keep things open for semi-legitimate, if still honestly, probably somewhat skeezy uses, created a space where all of these small time operators could thrive. Because the the sort of the, the burden of actually having to come up with that law kept getting pushed down the road. So the moment when CAN spam happens is the moment when, first of all, the government is actually able to like close that umbrella, and suddenly a lot of people that were able to kind of hover on the margins of legitimacy, suddenly begin having to like uh, engage in a whole different set of practices. There were real teeth to the bill and to the way that it was um, potentially prosecuted. People could go to jail. They could lose huge amounts of money. Um, but the the other crucial thing about this, the other reason why it was a real landmark moment, is that CAN-SPAM specified um, structural components to email so that it wouldn't qualify as spam. So to send a message, to send an unsolicited ad message or whatever, you had to include a bunch of different pieces of formal text that were like set in advance. Particular things about how you were canned spam compliant, and links to where people could unsubscribe, and like stuff that we're all to some degree still familiar with. Because if you get you know, a message from a MailChimp mailing campaign or whatever, In your email, you're going to still see somewhat similar text. The reason why that really mattered was that at the same time that canned spam was taking shape, the first really good email filtering systems were starting to be developed. In particular, um, a, a set, a family of systems that were using something called Bayesian probability to analyze spam messages, and we can maybe talk a little bit more about that. But the heart of that system, the brilliance of the filtering, was that instead of trying to like block particular email addresses because the spammers would keep switching addresses, instead of trying to identify like particular kinds of behavior because the spammers would keep changing up how their messages would work, they would just analyze the text of the messages. They would just look for messages that had text that looked like spam, and then they would block those messages. So now you can see it's like a pincher movement, right? Like the law says If you're not going to be a spammer, you have to include this text in your messages. And the filters say, we are going to identify exactly that text as probably text that's in a message that this user considers spam, so they're not even going to see it. And then you now suddenly, as a spammer, you've got like a choice to make. Am I going to try to comply and have my business fail, or am I going to leave the business, or am I going to admit? that I am a straight up non-compliant criminal. Um, and a lot of people didn't really want to make that last choice who are in the spam space. And they ended up kind of moving into all kinds of other things, you know, these various other lines of businesses. There were plenty of other ways to market, you know, off-brand weight loss pills. But the people who stayed, Who stayed in the business, they were now in a different kind of business. They were in a business where they could go to jail. They were in a business where it was a lot harder to make money doing small time scams. They were in a business where they had to start operating in a fundamentally different way. So, that to the the last part of your question is really where the success and failure of can spam lay. Like, can spam was something that actually succeeded when combined with better filtering software and more. User literacy and so on succeeded in doing what it wanted to do. It like wiped out spam as it currently existed. And in its place, something far more virulent um, sort of began to rise. And I, I like to think of that moment as almost being like the proliferation of antibiotics, you know, where it's like, it's great. It really works. Like suddenly people aren't dying of infections, but then something else, you know, superbugs start to breed in reaction to that. And we have a whole different kind of problem on our hands.
0: Uh, I, mean, I mean, to me, your story is it's really sad what spam has become um, where there's more spam. Than ever now, thanks to yeah. the the ease with which it can be created and sent. But most of it, we never see because of these filtering algorithms that are keeping it away from us. Um, you know, there's there's certainly lots of legitimate advertising. But what constitutes spam is mostly a lot of trying to get you to click on links to spread viruses or malware. Yeah, or, you know, something really skeezy. Uh, and it's really just sort of about taking control of your computer. Uh, am I? I mean, I. I don't want to be romantic about <laughs> late '90s spam, but uh, the, pic, the the story of what spam is today is that is a very dark, sad one.
1: Absolutely, no. Well, and it is. It's something where, like, I. Um, I, trust me, like, I, I share, I share that similar kind of where it's like, I certainly, God knows I don't romanticize, um, the, the, the spam of that earlier period because many of those people were total slime balls in, in very much, you know, in ways that, um, were, were, you know, not admirable, but, in retrospect, they do, like, they seem like characters that, like, Steve Buscemi would play in the movie, you know, where they're, like, these guys who, like, they have, like, a warehouse of dead stock toys and, you know, they have someone who, like, sells, you know, um, like, bodybuilding supplements and, like, they're the, they're the kind of people who used to run a whole family of, like, kind of gray market edging into black market, kind of scammy but kind of legit Things you know, stuff that used to be in the background, you know, in the in the back pages of like Soldier of Fortune magazine or whatever, um, they'd edged into this new space, and and there was a lot of like you know the sorts of these these sorts of things that have a kind of romantic charm to us now. The period when you could actually get someone trying to sell you a counterfeit watch or whatever. However, um, I think part of the reason why that seems romantic in retrospect, even though they, they were you know they, you know kind of taking advantage most of the time of of gullible and credulous people in various ways. The reason why that seems so romantic is precisely that it was, in a a bizarre way, still kind of a cottage industry. Um, A lot of the spammers that I found from the 90s were people who were, there were a lot more of them, and they were running a lot more different kinds of businesses, and the businesses were in this sort of, um, they were more relatable, for lack of a better way of putting it. These are people who had, like, you know, a lease T1 line and a bunch of beige box computers in a basement and a piece of software that they bought for $70 that allowed them to run these giant mailing campaigns. And they were out there trying to, like, drum up business and collect zip code databases. And, and it's not... It's it's not good, but it's sort of not unrecognizable, you know. And now what spam became post-2003 was something that was structured along lines that ultimately have like military consequences, where people started building uh, far more sophisticated and far larger systems that would allow them – to Yeah, to take control of computers remotely, to be able to use those to send enormous volumes of spam messages, um, to be able to use the control of computers to do things like scrub the machines for information, for running credit card and identity theft scams on a large scale, like on, a, on, an, on an industrial scale, and also to use those machines for many other kinds of purposes. Like there's an interesting mission creep that starts to evolve, where if you control a large enough block of machines in a botnet that you're using to generate spam, you go can also use those machines for denial of service attacks. You can use them to like take down companies or individuals on sort of a hitman basis um, that uh, they are either being paid to do or that you want to do yourself. Um, you start to see more and more spammers who are sort of getting into spam and then from there kind of stumbling into espionage, you know, who are like exfiltrating data and doing all kinds of um, activities whose consequences, whose malfeasance is far more extreme. Um, There was a period in spam where, you know, as as much as this is not great, you could still, like, make do business with a spammer and you would actually get some kind of physical object you know you would like get the diet pills you would get the dead stock office furniture um and it would be garbage and it would maybe make you sick but there was still like this kind of you know um goods and services in return for payment arrangement that makes a kind of sense to us whereas post 2003 that starts to shift profoundly and now it's something where you get involved with a spammer even in a way that you don't necessarily understand in a way that's not deliberate deliberate or conscious on your part. And suddenly your computer is under someone else's control and your credit cards have been cleaned out. Like that's, that's a whole different sort of arrangement. So it's just to say that I, I sympathize very much with the tendency. And I feel it a little bit myself to romanticize the prior order, precisely because it was at least at something that feels like a human scale. And now we're, we're in a whole different arrangement.
0: And and on the side of anti-spam, These days, I mean, the biggest fighters of that are the big platforms like Google or Facebook or Twitter, which you were you were talking about earlier. It's not government organizations. It's not sort of another can spam kind of act. Um, These organizations both profit from spam to some extent, to to the extent that spam is creating fake traffic for them or Mm -hmm. driving them to driving people to websites where they view ads that, you know, they get a cut of. Uh, But it's also hurting their business, hurting their credibility with, with consumers. How do you think these organizations, I mean, each one's probably handling their own how to deal with spam differently, but sort of how would you assess the way they approach the problem of spam versus the way the governments were trying to do it with canned spam, you know, a decade ago?
1: Uh, that's a. It's that's a, a an especially good question, precisely because I think there is a um, like that's that's part of the sea change that happens in spam, and I think it's one whose influence on our daily lives now has been kind of under, you know, um, as, as as we we haven't given it as much weight as I think it deserves. Because yeah, like a lot of the the people who are the people who are the reason why our Contemporary Internet experience is, by and large, as spam-free as it is, are, are a, a small family of major corporations, um, the ones you've mentioned, also Cisco, um, a number of sort of enterprise-scale groups that build various sorts of spam and antivirus uh, technologies. Um, and just to take Google as a specific example, um, one of the reasons why Google is able to be as effective as it is at fighting spam is precisely because it stopped trying to identify um, definitively what it was that people considered spam. So when you look at something like can spam, right, there's a, there's a process of trying to legally figure out, okay, how can we more or less uh, define what spam is so that we can say that you are guilty of it and you should go to jail. Um, and you can see, you know, and they, they have to do a certain amount of, like, the same rhetorical juggling that we have with issues around, like, obscenity with similar kind of subjective things where it's like, okay, are there nipples, you know? Is that the thing that we use as, like, the threshold? Um, is it something else? The brilliance of the filtering systems that emerged, and in particular of Google, is that of Gmail – is that they started to think um, not of can we come up with some canonical permanent description of what spam is, but instead, can we simply rely on all of these individual subjective judgments that users are making? Every time someone flags a message as spam or not spam, can we turn all of that into data? And can we use that data as a kind of coherent, real-time 24-7 snapshot of what people currently think spam is. And as long as we have that, like, that picture, which we can just sort of continuously update, then we can stop all of the messages that behave like that. And and that's a real kind of genius stroke. And it's something that I've actually seen some of these systems, without going too much into areas that are, you know, under NDAs or things, but some of these systems that, that major companies run where they're, it's like the world map in like Dr. Strangelove, you know, where they have like a map of the internet, like something very close to an actual map of the internet. And as a spammer, for example, takes over a particular like, set of academic computers from one university in one country and starts to use those to send out huge volumes of spam, they can, in real time, start weighting messages that come from that IP address block slightly differently so that it's like much easier to, twi- to, to identify one of those messages as probably being a spam message based on its content. So we now have this like incredibly sophisticated system of tools. And that's a lot of the reason why we kind of now experience the network the way that we do. There's still spammers out there and they're still operating at huge volume. But, but to your, to your larger point, I think one of the other things that has now come from this is that the kinds of spam that we encounter are often subtler and they often take advantage of the very weaknesses that these new platforms have created, right? So, um, so staying with Google as an example, um, Google has built all of this incredible anti-spam software, both for, um, filtering email, but also for things like identifying spam links so that they can make it so that certain things will not be like boosted artificially in Google search returns, but they built all of that stuff by paying people salaries with money from ads. And I don't just mean this in a general indictment of ads, but rather specifically that, of course, one of the ways that many of these sleazier, kind of more in the gray zone people are edging over into being spammers online, um, one of the ways that they make money is through coming up with scams that involve using Google's ad systems. Um, so, whenever you kind of encounter one of those things where you're like looking for like an appliance review or something because you like want to buy a toaster, and then you get all of those pages where it's like, this seems really wrong. Like, I clicked through on this link and it's just like all these ads, and then there's like a bunch of text, and the text doesn't even seem like it was written by a person, and it's still sort of nominally about toasters, but I can't really put my finger on exactly, and most of it seems to have been copied from Amazon reviews. Like, that is a site that is using Google's infrastructure. Against it, but at the same time, that's a site that's helping to make money for Google because as you're looking at those pages, you are making money for the companies that for 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 Google as the company that is providing the ads on behalf of still other clients on behalf of still other companies. So it puts them in a very delicate position in a way that's very similar to the Twitter case we talked about. Facebook is running into this as well. Um, now, increasingly, the spammers are in their inimitable way finding exactly those same points of like social uncertainty where the technological model that we have of what spam is like runs into the social ambiguities about figuring out exactly how to identify something that we can like be confident is spam without cutting out this huge space of use that is actually benefiting those companies to some degree. And that's going to be a much harder, kind of long term nut to crack like that's a much trickier uh thing to to figure out precisely especially because as i say it's something where that is actually kind of benefiting google up to the point that it starts to like ruin their advertising network and ruin their user experience to the degree that they need to take
0: action i, I want to put a point on this is is your sense that spam though is still being created that that page you're describing with Sort of blocks of text and lots of ads, and it's not quite clear, sort of where how it all fits together, um, being created by machines as opposed to, I would just sort of say the the buzz of content marketing today around sort of the clickbait, sort of headaches with, you know, <laughs> yes. you know 12, 12 things to view when you go to Florida or whatever. whatever yeah. <laughs> you know, right? like, which those are being created by humans. They're laid out well. They often have a fun, you know, they, they have some funny things in them and, and whatnot. Yeah. But you're drawing a distinction between something like that uh, and and some of these other, what I think are more automatically created, um, slightly more Frankensteinish uh, yeah. pages.
1: Well, it's actually like, this is, um, this is something that I I, 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 find really fascinating because I, I am to some degree, but there's also like a fair number of spammy activities that these very, so, so to, to take a very concrete example, right? Like, uh, Facebook is having a ton of trouble with, uh, what's, what's called, there's a bunch of different terms for it, but what's often called like farming, right? Where, um, you have... A group of human users who are being paid, you know, who are essentially in like a digital sweatshop and they're being paid to like particular things. So this way, if you like know where to go online, you can like find a place and be like, OK, we've just launched this brand. We've launched this product. I don't know. I've got my weird health cure or whatever. To make us look respectable, we need a ton of likes. We need to look like we are, you know, beloved in the population. So you can go somewhere and you can, like, buy blocks of likes, you know, in units of 10,000 or whatever. And then in the back end, there will be this digital sweatshop where these people have many different accounts and lots of different things that are semi-automatically generated, but there's also always human stages like CAPTCHAs that they have to work through. Um, now, I say this because that's something that's obviously clearly fraudulent. Like these are people who are taking advantage of Facebook systems to generate an illusion of popularity by using humans as essentially machines. Um, However, Like farming is easy for Facebook to spot, right? Like, if you're going to have, you know, some, some set of, imagine just like a set of Facebook accounts. They're all from like one chunk of IP addresses in like Vietnam and they all only like things. They never message people, you know, they never like post stuff to their timeline. They just like one very specific set of things all at once. Like, that's, pretty obviously wrong. So instead what the like farmers do is they've developed like um essentially kind of like probability distributions where it's like okay um to earn your 2 bucks a day you guys are going to Like whatever it is the the client has hired us to like, but you're also going to like a bunch of other stuff, and you're going to engage in a bunch of social networking activity that is going to, you know, sort of throw Facebook off the scent. That's going to create enough of an atmosphere of legitimacy that they they're sort of their automated systems they're using to evaluate us are going to miss what's going on here. Now, I I want to lay out that example because I think it really captures the ambiguity. Of some of the situations that you're describing where there are, there's something where it's like at a certain point, it's almost like a Zen koan, you know, or it's like if a tree falls in the forest, does anyone hear it? If, if it's social network activity that's bought and paid for, but it looks almost exactly like normal social network activity, is it social network activity, you know, or is it spam? Um, and and in the same way, one of the things that makes the contemporary situation really ambiguous is that the growing sophistication of the tools for producing stuff that we think of as like content farming. And the kind of growing regimentation of the human content producers is starting to kind of blur that line, right? We're starting to end up in a space that's again like kind of ambiguous where you, we actually need to start having like in some cases, and I've been amazed to see this making a comeback, like human moderators coming in to kind of make that final call as to whether or not this is A machine that's trying to act like a human or a paid human who's kind of acting like a machine or just an actual user who has the bad luck to be someone who's just like, you know, liking Burger King over and over and otherwise not doing much of anything else, but who will be outraged and justifiably so if you delete their account on the grounds that they're a spammer. Um, So it's, it's like it's to say that we're we. For a while, we were in a space where it seemed pretty easy to, to solve certain kinds of spam problems. But now we're, we're moving back into a space where that's become a lot more complex and where from the perspective of Google, for example, like there's going to be certain like demand media properties that are going to more or less look like straight up machine-generated content farms, even though they are produced by humans, you know, like working through Mechanical Turk or whatever. And then there's going to be, like, more or less machine-produced activity that's actually starting to look pretty legitimate and may, in fact, be kind of legitimate. So it's just to say that this is now, like, a whole new space, like a really interesting space of both, like, ethical complexities but also just day-to-day
0: business complexities. So this was a question. Maybe... This is a question I had uh, sort of, again, sort of thinking about the the long, the slow, sad death of where spam is going. (laughs) Uh, And I see, are are we essentially at the end of spam? Not that spam won't exist. Spam will forever exist. Um, But are we in this space where spam is sort of permanently in a domain of criminal activity or fraud or taking over machines or uh, sort of simulating legitimate... Uh, social activity but it's all you know it's all basically anti-human um (laughs) is that where like is that sort of where we are just permanently with spam right (laughs) (laughs) that's
1: a really that's a really good way of putting it no that it is i mean it's something that has um i think has become yeah like kind of a chronic phenomenon where but but you're absolutely right. I think as well in kind of nailing one particular aspect of that, which is that that yeah, we're, it's not that we're at the end of spam, but that 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 we're at like the end game of spam. You know, where it's we've sort of we've sort of settled into it's it seems to have found its like ecological niche, um, which is exactly like identifying these spaces where. Clamping down on that activity across the board would interfere with other kinds of activities that we actually maybe want to encourage and and being able to sort of to to pinpoint that with precision is never going to be easy and it is perhaps something where spam has exactly like kind of found where, where spammers and and their algorithms have like found the space where they will be able to kind of continue to operate, never destroying the network, you know? Like, people were genuinely afraid in the early 90s in particular that, like, as spam proliferated and as both governments and engineers seemed kind of helpless to figure out exactly what to do about it, um, that this was something that was going to, like, ruin email like email would be a dead technology because we would never figure out how to fix this and it would just make it into a wasteland and and obviously that didn't come to pass and i don't think it ever will that like spam we're past the period where spam is a threat that is going to like actively destroy things but but I think we are in a period where it's going to instead generate a kind of constant low level crisis management problem. Spammers are always fishing around to get people's, um, to get logins for people's email accounts, if especially if they're on certain networks, because then they can use them to send huge volumes of spam. Um, The profitability of doing identity theft and credit card theft means that like phishing messages continue to kind of proliferate. And, and like, so there's a new hot area of spam. God help us all, uh, which is, uh, which is book spam, which is um, people on Amazon who are using, you know, Amazon has built this pretty incredible marketplace for eBooks and print on demand books. Um, in particular ebooks, and as it turns out um, there 's enough people on that marketplace that you can like write up some stuff to like scrape public domain sources and automatically generate a million books. Um, those books might not even exist until someone buys them. Only their listing exists, but their listing gives the false impression that like a human has sat down and wrote this book about this one unbelievably esoteric subject. Um, And that this is so there's there's a guy, one of the people who specializes in this is a guy who's created a whole family of programs that produce exactly this kind of thing. And whenever you see those like joking, like, what the hell is this? Things that people are circulating on social media where they find a book on Amazon that costs like six hundred dollars. And it's like the outlook for wooden toilet seats in Bangladesh, 2016 to 2019. That's one of his. That book doesn't actually exist. Only the parameters for the book exist. And if at some point a single customer, a single person who is maybe like a consultant or someone who's working for a company in plumbing fixtures and they're like they have a line item to do research and they order that book. His programs will scrape the web for everything related to that subject, dump it onto a PDF file or, you know, whatever like back-end file he's he's going to be using. No human will ever look at that book until it arrives at someone's doorstep and they can open it and be disappointed. But at that point he's, you know, he's made his money. This is a business with virtually no overhead, zero initial investment, almost no sunk costs, and everything that's produced is pure profit. And again, this is a system where Amazon can start cracking down on especially egregious examples like that, but you're going to start seeing, and in fact, we already are seeing lots of other kinds of examples of people who will just like have something that will automatically search for blogs about minimalism, and then it will just scrape those blogs, grab all the pictures, grab all the text, dump it into a book, post it automatically to Amazon as a Kindle, like as a you know ebook um, that will just say uh, you know or print on demand that will just say like you know minimalism simplify your life you know seventeen dollars. It's all stolen content. Um, and, and that's like another example of a system where this is, this is a space where you wouldn't think that spam would thrive. But in fact, these new kind of spam-like systems are thriving in that space and people have migrated the term spam out of email and to describe like book spam, publishing spam, ebook spam, which are all kind of terms that are, that are in use now to describe this phenomenon. So, so to your point, I would suggest that it's both that There's particular technologies of spamming that are now well-established and seem to be pretty persistent. But there's also a particular approach, right? There's like a particular tactic for identifying these new domains where you can get in and leverage the technology to produce huge volumes of information at extremely low cost and then sort of game the systems of salience, game the rating systems, game the filtering systems. Um, And as long as it costs nothing for you to generate, all of that. If you get even a small set of customers, you're still making money. And so that's the space where I suspect we're also going to see, to your point, spam is a persistent chronic phenomenon because that technique is now very well established and people keep finding new domains to
0: apply it to. So maybe perhaps I will get to get back to the late 90s of uh, counterfeit counterfeit goods only in the form of PDF book files.
1: (laughs) Yes, yeah. No, exactly. And actually, one of the things that I am personally super curious to see is when we start seeing, like, as we see, like, uh, local manufacturing and 3D printing and, like, small-scale fabrication take off, I have no doubt that we are going to start seeing, like, spam of physical goods that's going to be very much along these lines or it's just going to be, like, you know, you're going to, like, see a purse that seems impossibly cheap, you know, that's like a high-end, um, you know, a Birkin bag or whatever, you know, some, some weird Tumblr is advertising it. You somehow see it through like a Google AdWords link and you click through and you buy it. And the person who created that they're not a formal product counterfeiter. They just have, like, a bunch of volumetric design files, and then when you order it, it automatically feeds those into some crappy 3D printer somewhere, and it spits out a shoddy copy of the bag and, like, dumps it onto an Amazon delivery drone to you. Um, Like, I I suspect we're going to see that, that same process happening over and over again wherever we see a new kind of functionality where you see those traits of, like, super low cost to produce, host, and generate information
0: final question for you here uh spam we've been talking about it largely in the context of computers internet technology i think that's how we all sort of that's what we all associate it with um i think one of the most interesting points of your book though is that spam is actually really a feature of networks and social connections so to me that's why you have so, the examples of some of the best known spams, the Nigerian letter spam with someone who has assets and needs your help with a lot of money <laughs> yeah. to unlock those assets, right? But as you, you know, you're documenting those going back to the French Revolution. Um, and those are essentially cons. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, how how do you fit spam and cons together? Are, are ancient cons you know, precursors to modern spam? Is that what spam is going to be going forward? Um, how do you how do you sort of fit spam outside of the context of the internet, technology, and computers?
1: God, that's a really that's that's a question that I'm still actually wrestling with to some degree because um, I mean, on one level, there's there's a very straightforward answer, which is that we've absolutely seen. Um, many classic cons and scams of many different kinds as well, but most notably, yeah, advanced fee fraud, the Nigerian letter scam. Um, like, find a whole new life online. Um, and, and there's one kind of very straightforward way that we can look at this, which is that, um, I mean, this is this maybe kind of a horrible thing to say, but but I think it's totally reasonable. Whenever you see one of these things and you're like, who could fall for this, you know? Like, we, I don't think we are able, as humans, to entirely cognitively grasp the scale that the network has grown to. So when you think of everyone you know, like everyone you know even reasonably well, which, depending on what kind of person you are, is you know, probably a couple hundred people, maybe more. Um, within that cohort, you then think of the most gullible person. You know, who is the most gullible person you've ever met? And now imagine uh, a machine, a system that is able to generate sufficiently large pools of people that there are thousands of those and thousands of people who are even more gullible than them. You know, that like one of the features of the growth of the Internet, of this kind of great landmark event of the 20th and 21st centuries, is that there are new users coming online every single day there are people in huge numbers giant populations of people you know the equivalent of like mid-sized cities who are encountering the network for the very first time um, they haven't been experiencing these scams since the 90s like we have, you know. Um, there's people who are using the network in a language that is not necessarily their first language. There's people who are seniors and indeed preying on the elderly. is one of the major features of a lot of these particular kinds of scams. Um, there's children. Uh, there's people who are in, in various ways like who, who lack various kinds of literacy about the nature of the systems that they're using. Um, as, as you can see with the recurring spam theme of like, Emails that purport to come from Microsoft about how you need to, like, download this to fix your particular computer, this piece of malware. Um, so in all of these, you can say, okay, that's, that's one really straightforward answer to that question, which is that these are, like, classic cons, but they are actually happening at a, at a much larger scale just because... You no longer have to hang around the train station trying to spot a sucker, you know like now you can now you can find them on a mass production basis. however, I, I would like to suggest um, a, a slightly subtler thing, which is that i 'm really obsessed with the history of cons, and I think they 're an absolutely fascinating area of kind of like social technique um, but one of the one of the really interesting things about studying that history is you can see the ways in which cons all play on particular known categories of cognitive biases that people have, um, the ways they keep kind of re-exploiting like all the, all the classic things that all of us live with in various forms, ways that we like misinterpret chance, ways that we weigh different kinds of rewards against each other or different kinds of risks, often in ways that are wildly inaccurate but feel really convincing to us. Um, even at the level of like one of the motors of the Nigerian letter scam is a known cognitive bias called the sunk cost fallacy, right? Like the conviction that money that you've put into something is somehow money you're still spending if you walk away from that rather than putting in more to try to get it back. And I say all of this because one of the things that I think we can see evolving both in the history of spam and in many of these new um, like dark user patterns that are developing in various kinds of online software, all the various sort of tricks and tools to get people to give over their credit card information or, like, agree to do something they wouldn't otherwise agree to do, to, like, share their information or, you know, let LinkedIn, you know, email every single person they've ever met or whatever. Like, all of of those things, in those things, I think we can see that there are, in fact, both old-fashioned but also new kinds of cognitive biases, new kinds of, like, mental fallacies and blind spots that exist between us and the kinds of technologies that we use now and that those are are spaces that we need to understand and clarify because they are really easy to exploit. Like, uh, you know, one of the kind of running threads of the history of hacking, um, hacking in in particularly the sense of like, you know, extracting information and exploiting systems um, is, is that the weaknesses are so often the humans and not the machines. So often the particular cognitive traits that, that, we humans are heir to. Um, And so one thing that I would just kind of like to to have as like a takeaway, and one of the things that I think is really interesting to look at for the future of spam is the, the task before us, which is to start to understand, to document, and to test, and to understand much more clearly all the new kinds of blind spots that we are developing in the ways that we use these systems.
0: My guest today has been Finn Brunton, author of Spam, A Shadow History of the Internet, Uh, Finn, thanks for being part of the New Books and Media and Communications podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This is a delight.